Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. We are reading Medusa's Coil by H.P. Lovecraft. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on to our story time. The drive toward Cape Girardeau had been through unfamiliar country, and as the late afternoon light grew golden and half-dreamlike, I realized that I must have directions if I expected to reach the town before night. I did not care to be wandering about these bleak southern Missouri lowlands after dark, for roads were poor, and the November cold rather formidable in an open roadster. Black clouds, too, were massing on the horizon, so I looked about among the long, gray and blue shadows that streaked the flat, brownish fields, hoping to glimpse some house where I might get the needed information. It was a lonely and deserted country, but at last I spied a roof among a clump of trees near the small river on my right, perhaps a full half-mile from the road, and probably reachable by some path or drive which I would presently come upon. In the absence of any nearer dwelling, I resolved to try my luck there, and was glad when the bushes by the roadside revealed the ruin of a carved stone gateway. It was covered with dry, dead vines, and choked with undergrowth, which explained why I had not been able to trace the path across the fields in my first distant view. I saw that I could not drive the car in, so I parked it very carefully near the gate, where a thick, evergreen would shield it in case of rain, and I got out for the long walk to the house. Traversing that brush-grown path in the gathering twilight, I was conscious of a distinct sense of foreboding, probably induced by the air of sinister decay hovering about the gate the former driveway. From the carvings of the old stone pillars, I inferred that this place was once in a state of manorial dignity, and I could clearly see that the driveway had originally boasted guardian lines of linden trees, some of which had died, while others had lost their special identity among the wild scrub growths of the region. As I plowed onward, cockleburs and stickers clung to my clothes, and I began to wonder whether the place could be inhabited after all. Was I tramping on a vain errand? For a moment, I was tempted to go back and try some farm farther along the road, when a view of the house ahead aroused my curiosity and stimulated my venturesome spirit. 
was something provocatively fascinating in the tree girt. It was a decrepit pile before me, for it spoke of the graces and spaciousness of a bygone era in a far more southerly environment. It was a typical wooden plantation house of the classic early 19th century pattern, with two and a half stories and a great ionic portico whose pillars reached up as far as the attic and supported a triangular pediment. Its state of decay was extreme and obvious. One of the vast columns having rotted and fallen on the ground, while the upper piazza or balcony had sagged dangerously low. Other buildings, I judged, had formerly stood near it. As I mounted the broad stone steps to the low porch in the carved and fan-lighted doorway, I felt distinctly nervous. I started to light a cigarette, but I desisted when I saw how dry and inflammable everything about me was. Though now convinced that the house was deserted, I nevertheless hesitated to violate its dignity without knocking. So I tugged at the rusty iron knocker until I could get it to move, and finally set up a cautious rapping which seemed to make the whole place shake and rattle. There was no response. Yet once more I applied the cumbrous creaking device, as much to dispel the sense of unholy silence and solitude as to arouse any possible occupant of the ruin. Somewhere near the river, I heard the mournful note of a dove, and it seemed as if the coursing water itself were faintly audible. Half in a dream, I seized and rattled the ancient latch, and finally gave the great six-paneled door a frank trying. It was unlocked, as I could see in a moment, and though it stuck and grated on its hinges, I began to push it open, stepping through it into a vast, shadowy hall as I did so. But the moment I took this step, I regretted it. It was not that a legion of specters confronted me in that dim and dusty hall with the ghostly empire furniture, but that I knew all at once, that the place was not deserted at all. There was a creaking on the great, curved staircase, and the sound of faltering footsteps slowly descending. Then I saw a tall, bent figure, silhouetted for an instant against the great, Palladian window on the landing. My first start of terror was soon over, and as the figure descended, the final fight. I was ready to greet the householder whose privacy I had invaded. In the semi-darkness, I could see him reach in his pocket for a match. There came a flare as he lighted a small kerosene lamp which stood on a rickety console table near the foot of the stairs. In the feeble glow was revealed the stooping figure of a very tall, emaciated old man. His attire was disordered, his face 
unshaven. Yet for all that, he had the bearing and expression of a gentleman. I did not wait for him to speak, but at once began to explain my presence. You'll pardon my coming in like this, but when my knocking didn't raise anyone, I concluded that no one lived here. What I wanted originally was to know the right road to Cape Girardeau. The shortest road, that is. I wanted to get there before dark, but now, of course. As I paused, the man spoke in exactly the cultivated tone I had expected, and with a mellow accent as unmistakably southern as the house he inhabited. Rather, you must pardon me for not answering your knock more promptly. I live in a very retired way, and am not usually expecting visitors. At first I thought you were a mere curiosity seeker. Then when you knocked again, I started to answer. But I am not well, and have to move very slowly. Spinal neuritis, a very troublesome case. But as for your getting to town before dark, it's plain you can't do that. The roads you are on, for I suppose you came from the gate, isn't the best or shortest way. What you must do is take your first left, after you leave the gate, that is, the first real road on your left. There are three or four cart paths you can ignore, but you can't mistake the real road because of the extra large willow tree on the right just opposite it. Then when you've turned, keep on past two roads and turn to the right along the third. After that, I was perplexed by these elaborate directions confusing things indeed to a total stranger, and I could not help interrupting. Please, sir, wait a moment. How can I follow all these clues in pitch darkness without ever having been near here before, and with only an indifferent pair of headlights to tell me what is and what isn't a road? Besides, I think it's going to storm pretty soon, and my car is an open one. It looks as if I were in a bad fix if I want to get to Cape Girardeau tonight. The fact is, I don't think I'd better try to make it. I don't like to impose burdens or anything like that. But in view of the circumstances, do you not suppose you could put me up for the night? I won't be any trouble no meals or anything. Just let me have a corner to sleep in until daylight, and I will be all right. I can leave the car in the road where it is. A bit of wet weather won't hurt it if worst comes to worst. As I made my sudden request, I could see the old man's face lose its former expression of quiet resignation and take on an odd surprised look. You want to sleep here? He seemed so astonished at my request that I repeated it. Yes, why not? 
I assure you I won't be any trouble. What else can I do? I'm a stranger hereabouts. These roads are a labyrinth in the dark. And I'll wager it'll be raining torrents outside of an hour. This time, it was my host's turn to interrupt, and as he did so, I felt a peculiar quality in his deep, musical voice. A stranger. Of course you must be, else you wouldn't think of sleeping here. You wouldn't think of coming here at all. People don't come here nowadays. He paused, and my desire to stay was increased a thousandfold by the sense of mystery his laconic words seemed to evoke. There was surely something alluringly strange about this place, and the pervasive musty smell seemed to cloak a thousand secrets. Again I noticed the extreme decrepitude of everything about me. It manifested even in the feeble rays of a single small lamp. I felt woefully chilly, and saw with regret that no heating seemed to be provided. Yet so great was my curiosity that I still wished most ardently to stay and learn something of the recluse and his dismal abode. Let that be as it may, I replied. I can't help about other people. But I surely would like to have a spot to stop until daylight. Still, if people don't relish this place, mayn't it be because it's getting so run down? Of course, I suppose, it would take a fortune to keep such an estate up. But if the burden's too great... Why don't you look for smaller quarters? Why try to stick it out here in this way, with all the hardships and discomforts? The man did not seem offended, but answered me very gravely. Surely you may stay if you wish to. You can come to no harm that I know of. But others claim there are certain peculiarly undesirable influences here. As for me, I stay here because I have to. There is something I feel it a duty to guard, something that holds me. I wish I had the money and health and ambition to take decent care of the house and grounds. With my curiosity still more heightened, I prepared to take my host at his word, and I followed him slowly upstairs. He motioned me to do so. It was very dark now, and a faint pattering outside told me that the threatened rain had come. I would have been glad of any shelter, but this was doubly welcome because of the hints of mystery about the place and its master for an incurable lover of the grotesque. No more fitting haven could have been provided. There was a second-floor corner room in less unkempt shape than the rest of the house, and into this my host led me, setting down his small lamp 
and lighting a somewhat larger one. From the cleanliness and the contents of the room, and from the books ranged along the walls, I could see that I had not guessed amiss in thinking the man a gentleman of taste and breeding. He was a hermit and eccentric, no doubt, but he still had standards and intellectual interests. As he waved me to a seat, I began a conversation on general topics, and was pleased to find him not at all taciturn. If anything, he seemed glad of someone to talk to, and did not even attempt to swerve the discourse from personal topics. He was, I learned, one Antoine de Roussy, of an ancient, powerful, and cultivated line of Louisiana planters. More than a century ago, his grandfather, a younger son, had migrated to southern Missouri and found a new estate in the lavish ancestral manor. Building this pillared mansion and surrounding it with all the accessories of a great plantation. There had been at one time as many as two hundred slaves in the cabins which stood on the flat ground in the rear. Ground in the river had now invaded and to hear them singing and laughing and playing the banjo at night was to know the fullest charm of civilization and social order now sadly extinct. In front of the house, where the great guardian oaks and willows stood, there had been a lawn like a broad green carpet, always watered and trimmed, and with flagstoned flower-bordered walks curving through it. Riverside, for such the place was called, had been a lovely and idyllic homestead in its day and my host could recall it when many traces of its best period still lingered. It was raining hard now, with dense sheets of water beating against the insecure roof, walls, and windows, and sending in drops through a thousand chinks and crevices. Moisture trickled down to the floor from unsuspected places, and the mounting wind rattled the rotting, loose hinged shutters outside. But I minded none of this, nor even thought of my roadster outside beneath the trees, for I saw that a story was coming. Incited to reminiscence, my host made a move to show me to sleeping quarters, but kept on recalling the older, better days. Soon I saw... I would receive an inkling of why he lived alone in that ancient place, and why his neighbors thought it was full of undesirable influences. His voice was very musical as he spoke on, and his tale soon took a turn, which left me no chance to grow drowsy. Yes, Riverside was built in 1816, and my father was born here in 1828. He'd be over a century old now if he were alive. But he died young. So young, I can just barely remember him. 
1964, that was, for he was killed in the war. 7th Louisiana Infantry, for he went back to the old home to enlist. My grandfather was too old to fight, yet he lived on to be 95 and helped my mother bring me up. A good bringing up, too, I'll give them credit. We always had strong traditions, high notions of honor, and my grandfather saw to it that I grew up the way the Russies have grown up, generation after generation, ever since the Crusades. We weren't quite wiped out financially, but managed to get on very comfortably after the war. I went to a good school in Louisiana, and later to Princeton. Later on, I was able to get the plantation on a fairly profitable basis, though you see what it's come to now. My mother died when I was twenty, and my grandfather two years later. It was rather lonely after that, and in 1985, I married a distant cousin in New Orleans. Things might have been different if she'd lived, but she died when my son Dennis was born. Then I only had Dennis. I didn't try marriage again and gave all my time to the boy. He was like me, like all the Derussies, dark and tall and thin, with a devil of a temper. I gave him the same training my grandfather had given me, but he didn't need much training when it came to points of honor. It was in him, I reckon. Never saw such high spirits. All I could do to keep from running away to the Spanish War when he was eleven. Romantic young devil, too. Full of high notions. You'd call them Victorian now. No trouble at all to make him leave the slaves alone. I sent him to the same school I'd gone to, and to Princeton as well. He was class of 1909. In the end, he decided to be a doctor, and went a year to the Harvard Medical School. Then he hit on the idea of keeping to the old French tradition of the family, and argued me into sending him across the Sorbonne. I did, and proudly enough though I knew how lonely I'd be without him so far. Would to God I hadn't. I thought he was the safest kind of a boy to be in Paris. But according to his letters and his friends, he couldn't quite keep up. The people he knew were mostly young fellows from home, serious students and artists who thought more of their work than of striking attitudes and painting the town red. Of course, there were lots of fellows who were on a sort of dividing line between serious studies and the devil. They were decadents, experimenters in life and sensation, the Baudelaire kind of a chap. Naturally, Dennis ran up against a good many of these and saw a good deal of their life. They had all sorts of crazy circles and cults. Imitation devil worship, fake 
black masses and the like. Doubt it, if it did them much harm on the whole. Probably most of them forgot all about it in a year or two. One of the deepest in this strange stuff was a fellow Dennis had known at school. For that matter, whose father I'd known myself, Frank Marsh of New Orleans, disciple of Lafcadio Hearn and Van Gogh, regular epitome of the yellow nineties. Poor devil. He had the makings of a great artist at that. Marsh was the oldest friend of Dennis, so as a matter of course, they saw a good deal of each other. To talk over old times at St. Clair Academy and all of that. The boy wrote me a good deal about him, and I didn't see any harm when he spoke of the group of mystics Marsh ran with. It seems there was some cult of prehistoric Egyptian and Carthaginian magic having a rage among the bohemian element on the left bank, some nonsensical thing that pretended to reach back to forgotten sources of hidden truth in lost African civilizations. The great Zimbabwe, the dead Atlantean cities in the Hagar region of the Sahara, and that had a lot of gibberish connected with snakes and human hair. At least, I called it gibberish then. Dennis used to quote Marsh as saying odd things about the veiled facts behind the legend of Medusa's snaky locks, and behind the later Ptolemaic myth of Berenice, who offered up her hair to save her husband brother, and had it set in the sky as the constellation Coma Berenices. I don't think this business made much impression on Dennis until the night of the strange ritual in Marsh's rooms when he met the priestess. Most of the devotees of this cult were young fellows, but the head of it was a young woman who called herself Tanit Isis, letting it be known that her real name the name in this latest incarnation, as she put it, was Marceline Bedard. She claimed to be the left-handed daughter of Marquis de Chameau, and seemed to have both a petty artist and an artist's model before adopting this more lucrative magical game. Someone said she had lived for a time in the West Indies, Martinique, I think, but she was very reticent about herself. Part of her pose was a great show of austerity and holiness, but I don't think the more experienced students took that very seriously. Dennis, though, was far from experienced and wrote me fully ten pages of slush about the goddess he had discovered. If I'd only realized his simplicity, I might have done something but I never thought a puppy infatuation like this could mean much. I felt absurdly sure that Dennis's touchy personal honor and family pride would always keep him out of the most serious complications. As time went on, though, his letters began to make me nervous. 
mention this Marceline more and more, and his friends less and less, and began talking about the cruel and silly way they declined to introduce her to their mothers and sisters. He seems to have asked her no questions about herself, and I don't doubt that she filled him full of romantic legendry concerning her origin and divine revelations and the way people slighted her. At length, I could see that Dennis was altogether cutting his own crowd and spending the bulk of his time with this alluring priestess. At her own special request, he never told the old crowd of their continual meetings, so nobody over there ever tried to break them up. I suppose she thought he was fabulously rich, for he had the air of a patrician, and people of a certain class think all aristocratic Americans are wealthy. In any case, she probably thought this a rare chance to contract a genuine, right-handed alliance and a really eligible young man. By the time my nervousness burst into open advice, it was too late. The boy had lawfully married her, and wrote that he was dropping his studies and bringing the woman home to Riverside. He said she had made a great sacrifice and resigned her leadership of the magical cult, and that henceforward she would merely be a private gentlewoman, the future mistress of Riverside and mother of Derusi's to come. Well, sir, I took it the best way I could, I knew that sophisticated continentals have different standards from our old American ones. And anyway, I really knew nothing against the woman. A charlatan, perhaps. But why necessarily any worse? I suppose I tried to keep as naive as possible about such things in those days. For the boy's sake. Clearly, there was nothing for a man of sense to do but to let Dennis alone so long as his new wife conformed to Derussi ways. Let her have a chance to prove herself. Perhaps she wouldn't hurt the family as much as some might fear. So I didn't raise any objections or ask any penitence. The thing was done, and I stood ready to welcome the boy back whatever he brought with him. They got here three weeks after the telegram telling of the marriage. Marceline was beautiful. There was no denying that. And I could see how the boy might very well get foolish about her. She did have an air of breeding. And I think to this day, she must have had some strains of good blood in her. She was apparently not much over twenty, of medium size, fairly slim, and as graceful as a tigress in posture and motions. Her complexion was a deep olive, like an older ivory, and her eyes were large and very dark. She had small, classically regular features, though not quite clean-cut enough to suit my taste and the most singular head of jet-black hair that I ever saw. 
I did not wonder that she had dragged the subject of hair into her magical cult, for with that heavy profusion of it, the idea must have occurred to her naturally. Coiled up, it made her look like some oriental princess in a drawing. Hanging down her back, it came well below her knees and shone in the light, as if it had possessed some separate, unholy vitality of its own. I would almost have thought of Medusa, of Berenice myself, without having such things suggested to me, simply upon seeing and studying her hair. Sometimes I thought it moved slightly of itself, and tended to arrange itself in distinct ropes or strands, but this may have been sheer illusion. She brushed it incessantly, and seemed to use some sort of preparation on it. I got the notion once, a curious, whimsical notion, that it was a living thing, which she had to feed in some strange way. All nonsense, but it added to my feeling of constraint about her and her hair. For I can't deny that I failed to like her wholly, no matter how hard I tried. I could not tell what the trouble was, but it was there. Something about her repelled me very subtly, and I could not help weaving morbid and macabre associations about everything connected with her. Her complexion called up thoughts of Babylon, Atlantis, and the terrible forgotten dominations of an elder world. Her eyes struck me sometimes as the eyes of some unholy forest creature or animal goddess, too immeasurably ancient to be fully human, and her hair, that dense, exotic, overnourished growth of oily inkiness. It made one shiver as a great black python might have done. There was no doubt, but that she realized my involuntary attitude, though I tried to hide it, and she tried to hide the fact that she noticed it. Yet the boy's infatuation lasted. He positively fawned on her, and overdid all the little gallantries of daily life to a sickening degree. She appeared to return the feeling, though I could see it took a conscious effort to make her duplicate his enthusiasms and extravagances. For one thing, I think she was piqued to learn that we weren't as wealthy as she had expected. It was a bad business, all told. I could see that sad undercurrents were arising. Dennis was half hypnotized with puppy love and began to grow away from me as he felt my shrinking from his wife. This kind of thing went on for months and I saw that I was losing my only son, the boy who had formed the center of all my thoughts and acts for the past quarter of a century. I'll own that I felt bitter about it, what father wouldn't, and yet I could do nothing. Marceline seemed to be a good wife enough in those early months, 
and our friends received her without any quibbling or questioning. I was always nervous, though, about what some of the young fellows in Paris might write home to their relatives after the news of the marriage spread around. Despite the woman's love of secrecy, it couldn't remain hidden forever. Indeed, Dennis had written a few of his closest friends in strict confidence as soon as he was settled with her at Riverside. I got to stay alone in my room more and more, with my failing health as an excuse. It was about that time that my present spinal neuritis began to develop, which made the excuse a pretty good one. Dennis didn't seem to notice the trouble or take any interest in me and my habits and affairs, and it hurt me to see how callous he was getting. I began to get sleepless, and often racked my brain in the night to try and find out what was really the matter, what it really was that made my new daughter-in-law so repulsive and even dimly horrible to me. It surely wasn't her old mystical nonsense, for she had left all the past behind her and never mentioned it once. She didn't even do any painting, although I understood that she had once dabbled in art. Oddly, the only ones who seemed to share my uneasiness were the servants. The slaves around the house seemed very sullen in their attitude towards her, and in a few weeks, all save the few who were strongly attached to our family had left. Those few old Scipio and his wife Sarah, the cook Delilah, and Mary, Scipio's daughter, were as civil as possible, but plainly revealed that their new mistress commanded their duty rather than their affection. They stayed in their own remote part of the house as much as possible. Macabre, our chauffeur, was insolently admiring rather than hostile, and another exception was a very old Zulu woman, said to have come from Africa over a hundred years before, who had been a sort of leader in her small cabin as a kind of family pensioner. She always showed reverence whenever Marceline came near her, and one time I saw her kiss the ground where her mistress had walked. She seemed a very superstitious animal, and I wondered whether Marceline had taken any of her mystical nonsense to her hands in order to overcome their evident dislike. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.